Welcome to Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. And today I want to continue from the last episode, which is really all about insight meditation. And when I characterized this in the last episode, and this is a direct quote from that, I said, it really is a critical process, a process of negation. One is trying to actively undermine something rather than construct something to tear down a solid wall or to uncover something which has been concealed, to find something which is normally hidden. So in most traditions it is a deconstructive process, not a process of building something up. So a large part of the job of insight meditation is correctly identifying what this thing in the way might actually be. First you have to find it and only then can you start tearing it down. And often it's not easy to find. So that's what I said last episode. Today I want to go much more deeply into this notion, uh, which is really an interrogation or investigation of what is in the way of insight. What is the solid wall? What is the thing we're supposed to be deconstructing or tearing down? Let me begin this interrogation by giving you the standard answer common not only to the Dharmic traditions, but also to many ethical and mystical and therapeutic and even religious orientations. And that is that the wall is ego. That's what's in the way. You must give up your ego. Tear it down, dismantle it, crush it, destroy it, give it away, make it stop. Okay, sounds about right, doesn't it? And very, very loosely, I think it kind of does put us on the right track, just roughly. But also very misleading in, in so many ways. Because for starters, if we're in the Dharmic traditions, we're dealing with a notion here, that is the notion of ego, which is thoroughly, thoroughly European. And not remotely Sanskrit or Indian or Tibetan or Japanese. And even in the Western context, ego has many different meanings and connotations. In modern philosophy, you have René Descartes' famous maxim, probably one of the most famous maxims of all time, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. I'm sure you know it. The I am is what is established by Descartes as the basis for apodictic or certain knowledge. Knowledge that, yes, even though I can doubt everything, I cannot doubt that I do exist, that I am, that I have an ego, a self, and I am this self. And I can know this with absolute certainty simply by examining my thoughts. Very, very great discovery for Descartes and later Cartesians such as Husserl. But yeah, maybe not for yogis trying to find truth in reality, right? It's tricky. Very tricky. I mean, the Buddhists say, self is a thing in the way. 
Anatman. But Samvedantans actually propose that meditation on the very phrase I am or I am that, Tatvamasi, is the method which leads to insight. Some of you might know about these movements, right? So it's tricky even just on that level. In any case, all of this is rather different from the later Freudian notion of the ego as the intermediary between the incredibly powerful forces of the id or the unconscious and the superego. An intermediary which is basically continually ransacked by those two much more potent drivers of action and behavior. So here we have a notion of ego which is not a strong, stable platform which we can stake our certainty upon, but rather something very flimsy and weak and more or less in a state of constant reactivity or even panic. I think this is probably more the moment where ego becomes a psychological concept which is deeply embedded in Western culture and language. I mean, we all know about it, right? If we turn maybe to more ordinary parlance outside of this particular theory or that particular philosophy, I think ego often has a connotation of a kind of self-centeredness or selfishness, and it's associated with a kind of moral fault of excessive pride or maybe narcissism. That is, it's all about me. Me first. And you and everyone else can kind of eat the scraps of my plate. So, you know, one thinks of Donald Trump and associated orientations to the world and reality where everything is seen through the lens of me. And it's probably true that not that many people reach that level of egocentricity, but I do also think maybe it's far easier to see this kind of thing in others and far harder to see it in ourselves, the sense in which we, subtly or not so subtly, put ourselves at the very centre of everything. And maybe that is the problem with this starting notion of ego. Ego is a starting point for the thing that insight meditation is supposed to be tearing down or knocking over. Because it itself is actually just a concept, or many quite distinct and contradictory concepts. And by trying to chase it out of your life, you may well end up chasing a phantom of your own imagination or construction. Which paradoxically is rather an egocentric preoccupation. That is, you may well end up constructing ego or expressing ego in your very attempts to get rid of ego. So you see, we're entering very slippery terrain here. Very, very slippery. And it's very hard to get refined and precise about the target that we're aiming for. And that's why anyone who really wants to make inroads with insight practice needs good training and good guidance. And that definitely should include good philosophical training too, because you simply need rather a lot of conceptual precision here to find the target. Because the target that we're looking for the wall that we are attempting to tear down is actually not one tangible, solid, identifiable thing. It's not like you have a gun with a telescopic aimer on it and you can look through that and see, ah, there it is, the wall. I've got it in my sights. For example, Nagarjuna and the Madhyamaka tradition are devastatingly clear 
that the thing in the way is something they call in Sanskrit swabhava. It translates to something like own being or intrinsic existence or independent nature. And here all the Mahayana Buddhists talk about this all the time. But whilst they're so, so clear about this as the one immutable target, the thing in the way, that kind of clarity is really only on the level of philosophy and discourse and rhetoric and logic. In the messiness of human life unfolding in all of its strangeness and glory, so Baba is not so easily found because it's kind of everywhere all of the time, but also it slips away every time you go looking for it because here's the trick, it never really existed in the first instance. So it's kind of there, but also not there. So that's a slippery target. And this is bloody slippery terrain because we're kind of in the business of chasing something unreal from our reality. It's not real, but it's there. And so long as it is there, the fruits of insight cannot dawn. And maybe it's important to realize here that unreal things can be very, very powerful in constituting reality. Maybe think about a romantic delusion that you may have had at some point in your life. I certainly had a few. It's kind of ridiculous how much an imaginary thing can animate your life in action. Or you could think about quantitative easing and the whole system of finance and money. Uh, yes, there is material causation. Um, there's iron ore being dug up and used and bananas being grown and sold. But also there's so much pure idealism pure imagination and one could even say fantasy which we're all kind of invested in either happily or unhappily and which the entire system kind of needs just to keep functioning and if you ask well where is the locus for this illusory reality no one quite knows because it's not really in any one place and no one really has omniscient knowledge or control of the whole system which is kind of why the GFC happened it's so many phantoms in so many minds. They're unreal, yet they constitute reality. So the sense in which we are constituted out of and constituted by illusory or unreal notions is really like this. And we're kind of dealing with a level of complexity here that's quite difficult and mind-boggling to contemplate. It's very, very subtle and elusive hard to find. And that is precisely why insight meditation is necessary as a tool, because it is the technique which can begin to start dealing with that level of complexity and subtlety and elusiveness. And I think the most important philosophical notion, which is also very practical and yogic, and common to most Dharmic traditions, is a concept called Vikalpa. It has so many different contexts and shades of meaning and you could really get quite lost trying to do justice to it. But I'm using it in one of its principal senses, which kind of refers to something like mental construction or contrivance. So it implies using language and concepts, the kinds of thinking that we do in language and with concepts. 
such as this right here. What's taking place here and now uh, in this episode is definitely an expression of vikalpa. There's a whole lot of conceptual notions and metaphors and ideas. There's logic which fits them together, which I've constructed and which you are reconstructing through your headphones and ears and brain. As humans, we do a lot of this. We are vikalpa creatures. And on some level, maybe we need to do a lot of this. But also on another level, we are probably a bit too addicted to it. And maybe we don't necessarily see ways or possibilities of putting the processes of mental construction down. We may not even really recognize that it's a problem. So I'm firmly suggesting here and writing on the back of many great philosophies and pundits and yogis through the ages that Vikalpa is kind of the thing in the way. It's the thing we need to deconstruct. Much closer than ego. So a wall being there is probably a misleading analogy. Vikalpa is much more like a wall being continually built by you, by your mind, by your thinking and discursive activities, kind of all of the time. It's the notion that you are something of a constant wall builder. That's really what you're doing with your life. So it's not there as something you can find and then tear down, like your ego, your self-centeredness as a thing or an entity or a substance of some kind. It's much more like a process, which is always taking place and which you must begin to see and then begin to intervene on, possibly to arrest. So, you know, it's very imminent, very much taking place all of the time and also very subtle and elusive and difficult to catch because you are the one doing it right now in this very moment and indeed pretty much all of the time. So really, insight meditation is about trying to catch this process of vikalpa, to see it taking place. If you never see it, then you have no hope whatsoever of arresting it, and you are condemned to build walls on reality for your whole life. And lo and behold, wherever you go, and whatever you do, you will be surrounded by a wall of your own making of your own construction. And often this feels a bit like a prison. A prison wall, because it has iron bars and barbed wire. And it feels unpleasant to be on the inside of. And that's why there is a paradigm of freedom and constraint in this terrain. The, the claim is that freedom is not really possible if we don't grasp the fact that we are contriving something upon reality rather than being able to open to reality as it is without such a contrivance. So ego, self, you know, probably a bit misleading as the target of insight practice. Whereas constantly building prison cells with our own internal discourses may be closer to the mark. So we need to think of ordinary phenomenal reality as a bit like a blank canvas. You are the painter 
and Vikalpa is what paints, or what you paint with. It's the paint, the colour, the energy, the expression that you fill the canvas of reality with. You could be painting rainbows and unicorns, or you could be painting dead bodies in the apocalypse. Which is to say, you know, our vikalpa is basically a manifestation of our moods and inclinations and dispositions and habits. And very often it's basically just dull, ordinary, routine, supermarket kind of painting. You know, that's that ever-present internal monologue, which just incessantly gossips inside our head all of the time. Well, the point here is that that gossiping is much, much more powerful in constructing your reality and therefore imprisoning it than you may realize. And that's really the real insight of insight practice. I mean, most of us live pretty dull lives. We want more excitement and more happiness, but we don't really get it that often. And then we outsource the blame for that dullness on pretty much everyone and everything else. It's the parenting, it's the weather, it's the lockdown, it's my job, it's this person or that person, it's the political system. Well, no, actually it's your own mind constantly painting with the vikalpa of brown and grey. And not seeing that it is a thing painting dullness all across your reality. So... To see your own mind painting reality, that is the so-called ego in the way. Which is far more subtle and elusive than we might have anticipated because the things it paints with are immaterial things like concepts and words and ideas. That's really the paint. And it's not only people like Trump who does such things. We all do it. We're all a bit Trumpian like this, in the sense that we go around painting the world in our image without necessarily realising that that's what we're doing. Now, of course, we may not paint other people quite so forcefully as he does, but the point is we're all contriving something onto reality, even if we believe it's good and moral and just, unicorns and rainbows and whatever isms you may be committed to. So, now we have a clear sense of the target, and perhaps you might be able to see far more readily why it is quite impossible to intervene on it without a decent amount of mental stability and concentration, which comes from a shamatha practice. That is, the calmness and dexterity that you gain from that creates a space where you can begin to witness these processes of how you construct your entire reality with your thinking and discourse and internal gossip and ideas. Once you can see this, even just a little bit, just a glimmer, then you have developed insight. This is really what insight is. It's, it is really the seeing of this process of vikalpa. But if you don't see it at all, which is frankly most human beings, then you also don't see any gap between your construction of reality and reality itself. And this is exactly what is meant by avidya and maya. It is a basic illusion that the things you project onto reality are 
in fact, reality. So what one misses is the facts of projection, and one doesn't see the processes that are involved in that. But if you do manage to see this, even if only in tidbits here and there, you also at the same time begin to start seeing something else in the same process. These are little gaps that open up when the construction or the painting momentarily ceases. And they are basically gaps of awareness, which are usually very, very clear and sharp. And this is why the Buddhists refer to it as prajna, something like intelligent, sharp, spacious awareness of mind. So this doesn't really develop so much as emerge through the gaps of vikalpa. So at this point we need to consider what emerges when the deconstruction is at least in part successful, when we are able to arrest or at least witness the processes of vikalpa. And these are the emergence of awareness, clarity, openness, sharpness, spaciousness. And I'd want to say something like intelligence too. Because it's kind of a sharp awareness, an awareness that can cook and drive a car very skillfully. It's not some kind of blank or zombie state of nothingness or emptiness in the Western sense of the term. There's a precision there. And this is really the meaning of mindfulness, or what mindfulness is meant to lead to. A very precise, skillful, diligent, open awareness that occurs in your experience when you cease the relentless discursive activity that's in the way, the wall building. And this is where, if you go further or more deeply into this, phenomenal reality and your mind can begin to co-emerge or coalesce together. There's kind of a unity there rather than a, a sense of friction or fragmentation. And this is where we can begin to explore notions of being uncontrived or to use a Zogchen notion, kind of natural the natural state. Very attractive ideas these days. I mean, people run to notions of Vedantic non-dualism or Zogchen or Mahamudra, you know, like bees to nectar. Very keen to enter these states of naturalness or freedom or authenticity where there's supposedly no gap between you and phenomenal reality, between mind and body and all these sorts of things. But, you know, there are many dangers with this kind of attraction. I think very often there's a sense of wanting to jump directly into these states of naturalness. You know, of being uncontrived, of being completely open and aware, of utterly vanquishing that wall between you and reality. And I think many people spend a lot of time kind of affirming to themselves the existence of these kinds of open, free states and of identifying maybe with the freedoms associated with them. But the danger of that approach is that it's a bit like making an escape from a prison cell. You know, you dig a tunnel or you manage to slide through the iron bars attempting to reach these inspiring states of uncontrived freedom or non-duality or naturalness. But if you don't see the target first, that is vikalpa, the part of you that is vikalpering all the time, if you don't see that, then even if you do happen to make it out of the prison, you will get caught and sent straight back. You know, and a brief escape really isn't worth that much. 
maybe this is um, the basic kind of problem associated with spiritual usages of psychedelics. You know, the trip will end, and when it does, the prison will return. So what you really have to see is that you are the one making your own prison out of your own unceasing melodrama of discourse and opinion and internal monologue. And this is really what is shaping your world and making it crappy and dull and irritating. If you can see this, then the prison begins to lose its power to contain you. It sort of naturally loses its grip. So that is, if you want the riches of insight, you really have to develop the tools to see the thing in the way, not the thing you're trying to get. And this is really the key point. You have to learn to deconstruct and negate, rather than being induced into some imagination of what you think freedom or naturalness or being uncontrived might be like. That is, you have to study constraint in order to accomplish freedom. That has to be the focus. The uncontrived only emerges when you see the nature of the contrived. So, this must be the object of contemplation. Thinking about the uncontrived is itself an act of vikalpa. It is an expression of contrivance. So you cannot think your way there, or read your way there. And I'm sorry to say, or listen to podcasts your way there. You cannot vikalpa your way there. The way there is to see and then undo and then relinquish these processes of vikalpa. And a great many people get very lost on this point. It's so easy to imagine naturalness or awareness or uncontrived reality or non-duality, to imagine the absence of the prison or to construct the idea of shunyata or parusha or atman or whatever the sacred word may be. And then take the imagined concept or thing to be it. But that is just an imagined concept, you see. So many people have wonderful, powerful, brilliant imaginations and they can visualize all manner of exotic ideas and realities, including abstract ones like shunyata or atman. But the real trick is to catch the mind doing this imagining. And then to enter the play between this kind of mental construction and its cessation. It is the ceasing that is important here. Not the content of your meditative experience. Because it is in the ceasing in which the uncontrived state really does emerge. So again, deconstruction or dissolution is at the heart of the matter. Ultimately, the maturing of an insight practice really entails seeing the play between the contrived and the uncontrived. In a sense, once you really can distinguish between them, the contrived isn't really a problem anymore because you kind of know it's nature. It's just you painting reality this way or that. You're not condemned to live subject to that painting. So even those bits, even when that's happening, those constraining bits of life no longer have such a hold on you because you actually have insight into their true nature. It's just your mind doing what it does. And you can start playing with that quite a lot. That's why there's so often the language of, that yogis use of 
the play of reality. Once you get to that level, and I certainly don't profess to be there myself, but when you get to that level, it's possible for reality to be much more of a play than it is hard work. Now, by way of concluding, I think it should be perfectly obvious to you that none of this happens easily or quickly. All of this is a lifetime occupation, or many lifetimes if you're being strictly dharmic. There are certainly stories of people just kind of getting it, you know, almost instantly, what you could call a sudden awakening. And there's room for this in many traditions. And there are more modern stories of psychedelics or even traumatic events opening up some kind of vista of insight. And I think most of these are true. But at the end of the day, for most of us, this is a really seriously very long-term pursuit. The fruits are without doubt the very best fruits that humanity can taste. But you have to do a lot of tree climbing to even see them, let alone pick them and eat them. In any case, it's probably enough about tearing down walls. We've undertaken a lot of wall building to get to this point, which is really one of the great paradoxes of this approach. You, know, you need ideas to get rid of ideas. You need philosophy to arrive at the place where it's no longer needed. That's just part of the terrain. The snake of ideas really has to eat itself. So that's probably a good note to stop on. Thank you for your attention and stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au.